Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The OECD says Ireland's transport system fosters growing car use and emissions by design and is unfit to enable the country to meet its greenhouse gas reduction goals. It was a report commissioned by the Climate Change Advisory Council to look at the need for, or to question whether we needed systemic change in our transport system. The answer of which from the OECD and their best experts was yes. IBEC objects to a paid domestic violence leave plan for workers, but the government disagrees. We need to be um, sensitive about this in the sense that um, it is a very difficult situation for uh, a person to find themselves in. Um, and it's not as if people are just going to uh, sort of just go forward and, and use this as some sort of excuse or something like that. That's not going to happen. And later, why Gen Z has decided to quietly quit their jobs. Stay with us to find out why more and more young workers are signing off. You can join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight, a man has died and his wife has been seriously injured after they were attacked and stabbed at a family funeral in Tralee in County Kerry. The incident happened at Newrath Cemetery just before noon today. Well, our Midwestern reporter, Eric Clark, is in Kerry tonight and has the latest on this investigation. Well, this was a violent and shocking incident that took place in broad daylight while a funeral was taking place here at Newrath Cemetery in Tralee. A man aged in his 40s was fatally stabbed. His wife was also stabbed and seriously injured. Her injuries, though, described as non-life-threatening. Gardaí say uh, an altercation involving a group of people uh, took place shortly before midday. They say also that the man was pronounced dead at the scene by ambulance personnel and his body was removed to University Hospital Kerry, where a post-mortem examination will take place. Uh, the woman was also taken to University Hospital Kerry for treatment for her injuries. A large section of the cemetery uh, was cordoned off by Gardaí. A comprehensive examination uh, of the scene has been taking place throughout the day and into tonight. Gardaí also searching the grounds here. And there have also been a number of follow-up searches elsewhere in County Kerry and in Cork. Gardaí have also established an incident room at Tralee Garda Station. A senior investigation officer has been appointed. Uh, witness statements have been taken from a number of the other mourners who were attending uh, this funeral here. 
and uh, Gardaí are also though, appealing for any other witnesses or anyone who has a camera footage that would be useful to their investigation uh, to get in contact with them. Uh, Gardaí at Tralee Garda Station can be contacted on 066 710 uh, The Garda Confidential Line is 1800 666 Our Gardaí say any Garda Station can be contacted with relevant information. Eric Clark there. Well, in other news today, a new report by the OECD has recommended a major redesign of Irish transport to meet climate targets and improve well-being. The report highlights that current Irish transport systems are designed in such a way that they foster growing car use and increased greenhouse emissions. Well, for more on this now, I'm joined here in studio by Dr Brian Caulfield from Trinity College Dublin, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly, Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers and media consultant formerly of AA Roadwatch, uh, Connor Faulkner. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, let's talk about this report, um, Brian. As someone who's hugely invested in the area of public transport and your research actually fed into this high-level report um, that was created for government, what do you make uh, on the critiques around the Irish transport system as it is and basically that it's unfit for purpose if we're to meet any of our climate goals? I, I suppose a lot of what's in the report isn't a surprise. Um, uh, we, we've known this for decades, that we are a very car-orientated culture. And that's what the report does. And what's great about the report is the OECD are looking at Ireland through their lens of international examples, best practice, and they can see how far away we are from reaching, reaching our, our climate goals. And I suppose it should be used as a tool, not as a threat, and that we can build from this report and say, right, OK, we shouldn't start here, we should start here perhaps, and we should maybe dial down on some of our targets, perhaps around electric vehicles, and also given more of the, the public realm to, to walking and cycling. Yeah, because it does call out, doesn't it, electric vehicles, and maybe the government or the focus on that as the answer to all um, problems when it comes to a more sustainable transport system in this country. It, 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 it does, and it's very, you know, it's very blunt in that part. It says that you know, a government that's promoting the use of cars is perhaps a bad idea when the whole report is saying it's because of this car dependency is why we're in the, we're in the problem that so we're in. So even if they are sort of green cars and e-cars we're talking about, there are still cars that are clogging up our roads. If it's a hydrogen car, an electric car, an autonomous car, they all take up the same footprint. They all cause congestion. Um, on this, um, there's also this idea, and this is where, where it's probably politically contentious, is that road space reallocation needs to happen. That's one of the key recommendations. Can you explain what that is and what, what they're talking about? So, so what they're talking about there is, say, the likes of Salt Hill or Strand Road in Dublin, that that space is reallocated to more active modes, lower carbon modes of transport. And they suggest this should be done by local authorities, that not, this could not be done at a national level. So that's the type of thing we're talking about, giving more space away from the private car, whether it's moving or if it's parked, to get buses moving quicker and people cycling and walking. Okay, so that's the idea is sort of to do away as well, I think, with sort of roadside parking spaces in urban areas, um, reduction to maybe single lane traffic, Connor, mm. to make way for, you know, a better bus corridor in the area. What do you think of all these ideas? Because realistically, this report is about reaching those climate targets net zero by 2050. We're going to have to implement them. We're going to have to go some, that's for sure. We're behind the targets we set for ourselves already. Uh, Brian's right in one thing. This, this is not new information. In a sense, we've brought in 
unquestioned experts with a global perspective to look at our data and uh, and feed us back what you know in our hearts and in our own research we already know we have a crazily car dependent culture in this country we've built it up over many years there's all sorts of different reasons for that we've allowed planning for example to spread out so our spatial use our land use is very poor inherently difficult to service that with public transport, so we're back in the car. We're still a largely rural country, so in rural Ireland there are very few options if you can't use a car. And, and our efforts to improve that have been, um, well, historically poor. Now, why is that? Is... is that objection, do you think, people actually like using their car? Like, you'd obviously be mm. a proponent of car use, can't Yeah. Well, look, we never have to persuade people to switch to an alternative that's good. So I think sometimes we can distract ourselves with this sort of fiction that we have a lazy car user who just won't be told and, you know, block them, move them, shift them. Because in reality, whenever you do provide a good quality alternative, nobody needs to be persuaded. You don't need to persuade people to take the Lewis, it's full. Mm -hmm. When you have a really good piece of cycling infrastructure along the canals in Dublin, I use it myself, there's other locations in Dublin, people don't need to be persuaded. But, they're getting on e-bikes, they're flocking to yeah. it. But I if, hear what you're saying, but you remember there was criticism, I think, of, a Sol, uh, of Salt Hill and Galway and they were looking to introduce sort of a car-free zone or at least to limit cars in that area because they wanted to introduce a cycle route. Mm. And there was huge opposition to that. Yeah, look, we've had huge opposition to all sorts of things. There was opposition to the Lewis when it was under construction in Dublin. Uh, a lot of people went mad. And um, similarly, when the Port Tunnel was built, when the M50 is built. But, you know, we've almost never built a good piece of infrastructure and regretted it. Uh, we always look back and say, why didn't we do more? One of the things we did with our Tiger Boom is we built a lot of roads, motorways and roads. Now we needed them. They hugely improved the country. They're mm. still transforming the country. We've reduced road deaths by two thirds. Great enough. But clearly we didn't do enough on the provision okay. of public transport alternatives while that investment yeah. was going on. Yeah. And, and that's what we need Certainly to do Certainly there's a big push. You can't say that Eamon Ryan isn't ambitious around this area, um, Lisa, when you're looking at what the Greens in government want to do when you look at their programme in government and what they want to, to see happen. So around roads, say, reallocation and space there, they want to see a lot more public transport. They want to see public transport spending, outdo road spending by two to one. But within government, is there not opposition to that? Like, what, what do, you know, Fianna Fáil think about that? Because that's what we hear. We get the backbench kickback when ideas like this are introduced. Well, there hasn't been kickback from my own party. You know, we're, Not yet, but we haven't well, had that, that, that the policies rolled out, have we? Well, look, the report is pretty damning, if we're honest about it, in that it says we're not meeting our targets and we're not going to meet them with the current plans. We, we have to take that on board and listen to that. And I think the Minister for Transport, uh, Eamon Ryan, was very honest when he said that it's not just about EVs because the point that Brian made that whether they're powered by electric or hydro, they're still on the road. So, you know, we're in agreement on that point. And I think, you know, all of the government parties have committed to the programme for government to reducing our emissions by 51% by 2030 and being carbon neutral by 2050. Yeah, so but that's let's still, take, for example, that's still the commitment. in order to do that, yeah. um, when you're looking at public transport, uh, I mean, among the proposals that the Greens, you know, that the Green, the Green Party and certainly Eamon Ryan has been ambitious around this and the OECD report would back it up. Do away with roadside parking spaces in urban areas, reduce to single lane traffic in many places, pedestrianisation of whole areas used mm -hmm. by cars. I mean, is that something that you're going to face a problem with implementing? Like even Eamon Ryan was saying today that these proposals and these plans will be politically unpalatable to people? Well, it depends on how you do it. I mean, if we have good quality public transport as an alternative, great. I'm all for that. I would love to cycle more. I live in Mayo. 
So we don't really have much public transport options for people. Our, our, our train network out of Mayo basically just goes to Dublin and a few stops in between. It's not regular. It's not, it doesn't go that often. You can't really use it for work. So, you know, moving outside of Dublin, where Dublin has got good public transport facilities and they're very well used because they are regular, they are consistent mm. and they are reliable. The rest of the country depends on their yeah. cars because there is no other option. So if you take an area like Mayo, for example, we have a rail project for the West, West Coast, the Western Rail Corridor. It has been asked for for 20 years. We've asked Minister Ryan for it. Every single Oireachtas member, cross party and none, support this project and it hasn't been delivered. And that's not just, you know, these are deputies and senators mm. from Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and other parties, Sinn Féin as well. So there is a push in rural parts of the country to have that public transport option because people really want to get out of their cars. They just simply have no choice. Um, okay, Louise, where does Sinn Féin stand on this? Because, you know, the, the, the policies and the recommendations of this are, are really progressive, mm -hmm. but they're also really putting it up to anyone in government to make huge wholesale change and, and a cultural change in the way we view, you know, transport in this mm -hmm. country, um, our love affair with cars and really saying, you know what, don't just... Uh, use an electric car, get get out of a car altogether and and start get, using public transport. Yeah, I mean, I is that I'm, something yeah, no, you I, would be a big proponent of and that we need to push through, even if it may be unpopular in communities? But I think providing people with a realistic uh, alternative that will turn up on time and that will be safe um, is, is actually what, what needs to happen. I'm very wary about the same people. So the, the, the Fianna Fáil um, and Green Party government the last time were the ones that sold me on a diesel car. I'm not buying another car off, the, off these people. So, uh, you know, I mean, uh, we were all told, buy diesel, diesel is the best thing to do. And then uh, a couple of years later, it was like, oh my God, you drive a diesel, that's desperate. And they're trying to, to, to get and people now we can't into, afford to drive a diesel. Uh, into electric And you cycle yourself. Vehicles. I do, I cycle as much as I possibly can. It's pretty dangerous to cycle out, outside of scary. So there's a couple of hairy moments when you're getting out. There is some decent uh, cycling infrastructure in Dublin, but we need a, an awful lot more. I mean, our local authorities, not just in Dublin, but in other places, are returning earning money back because they're not spending on their, they're not spending their active travel budget. But is that because, I mean, what's happening there? What's happening at local level? Is it objections? I mean, there is this sort of NIMBY idea and we've heard as well, you know, recently enough, you know, in, in areas like um, in Cork where they're objecting to say, you know, a, a bus corridor or whatever being extended because parking places will then be you but know, again, that goes back to the fact that abandoned. people are very nervous to give up their, they're very nervous to give up their cars because they don't have an alternative. So they need to see that the alternative right. is there. But we also need to see a little bit of leadership from the government. So if local authorities are not spending their active travel budget, well, then the government needs to step in there and ensure that they provide the leadership and that that money is in fact spent. We also need to get younger people into the habit of uh, using public transport. And that's why Sinn Féin had proposed as part of our alternative budget, a 50% mm. reduction for under 18 in, in fares and another 50% reduction okay. so that it's free for them. They get into that good habit and they're used to using public transport uh, and they won't be as reliant on The big cars. message around and all on of this... the fares as well. I mean, the fares... Okay. There has been a reduction in public transport. In the 20% transport, reduction, we've heard 50, about that. It's 50% for younger people, for right. 16, 17, 18-year-olds and up to 23. Okay. And the usage has gone up massively. So younger people, if it's there, if yeah. the, if the fares are the right price... Yeah. They're using it's very, the transport. And it's very but also, I think the research also finds, doesn't it, that actually cost isn't the big issue here. If the service is there and the service is reliable, then people are more likely to use it. Like people who say, it's all very well having this discussion about looking for alternatives, get out of your car. But are the alternatives there and will they be 
the, the air as part of these, you know, bigger plans that are, you know, being recommended to government? Well, I suppose that's 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 what's going to happen with these plans. And, and research that I've done has shown that the pockets of the country that are in what we call forced car ownership, that they have to own a car. They're spending more of their, their household budget on moving around than somebody that somebody in a city. So mm. those kind of services need to be there. And the research does show that, you know, that cost of using public transport isn't as high as frequency and reliability of yeah. service and they need to be there and that's what we should be spending our money on. Now I was looking um, within this report one of the recommendations or ideas out there is this shared services the idea that there would be e-bikes and scooters say in a rural community or a shuttle bus um, on call and that this would serve the public transport function. How realistic is that? We don't even have, say, sufficient EV charging points around the country that you would then have your e-scooter, your e-bike, and that you'd somehow be able to bring it all together um, for people. It, 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 I think it is realistic. There was another report that I was involved in with the OECD and we looked at this rural, smart rural um, transport and it is about bringing in shared modes of transport. It's about bringing in e-bikes and e-cars because they're so expensive, bringing them into, into, into an area. And, and what about people with mobility issues and that? Are you always going to just you, you know, face that people in circumstances will need to use you will cars. You will have, always have that. And there's the, the what about argument will always be there. But you know, I think when a certain percentage of people can use it, they will use it. But on the e-scooters and the e-cargo bikes, I know e-scooters are still going through the houses of the Oireachtas. But in the budget, there was nothing in there on, on shared mobility, nothing in there yeah. e-cargo bikes, nothing at all. And someone no, no, is making the... nothing positive on e-cars either. And Ryan. somebody and, and was making the BIK point as well, who's been in touch with the show, to say on the issue of e-bikes that they spent an awful lot of money investing in an e-bike, took out a loan, and that there's no grants, there's nothing to kind of incentivise that. Again, the alternative to getting into a car, Lisa. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I think e-bikes are new enough to the scene and they kind of took off, if, excuse the phrase, uh, during the, the pandemic. Um, actually, very recently, only in the last couple of weeks, we have a bike sharing service now in Castlebar and Mayo in a rural town. And, and people, it's the talk of the town because it's an unusual thing for us in a rural town to have that facility. People are using it. Um, they're very prominent and they're not, not like Dublin bikes where you have to lock in. They're freestanding and you, 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 you purchase your, your membership. So it is good to see that, but there's a huge lack of bike, bike lanes or cycling lanes in rural towns and rural areas. So again, the safety issue that Louise mentioned, that it's a safe thing to do, you know, that's that's important. So there is smarter travel money. Lots of local authorities are spending it. Uh, I don't know the situation with all, but I know in Mayo, a lot of, a lot of the money is spent, mm. if not all of it. Mm. And it's really transformed. We've got the Great Western Greenway, um, same in Waterford. So there is lots of positives in terms of cycling, but we have a lot more to do. I think we do. need to also talk about safety on public transport as well, because I think that, you know, the, the women in particular, when surveyed, will say that that is a barrier. And I know that there was uh, there was a lot of chat coming out of government about uh, looking at that and about potentially uh, putting something towards a, a transport, dedicated transport service. I was really disappointed, actually, as someone who is a regular commuter and a regular train user, that absolutely nothing was done. So, you know, public transport has to be accessible as well. Well, and not just obviously for, for women, yeah. but for people with disabilities. Every single day we see on Access for All on the Twitter account, and I see it myself sure. at my own train station, the lifts are out <laughs> of order. So it has to be for everybody. It has to be available and has to be yeah. on time. It's got to be accessible Connor. and it's got to be safe. OK, um, Connor, and just to talk uh, um, about how called car dependence is really mm. called out. I mean, even we have somebody who's, who's got in contact to say, look at the weather in Ireland, like there's a reason that we use our cars. Well, but is that the sort of ingrained, like is that the mindset that you believe as look, a car lover, like we're a gas-guzzling nation, that, that sort of 
that has to change. But how do you go about I, doing that? Well, <laughs> um, I, there's a few things in there, Claire. In the first instance, if we just roll back a bit, I don't accept that Ireland is a nation of fanatical car lovers. It just isn't true. Our rate of car ownership is unremarkable by European standards, despite having very poor public transport. And, you know, Dublin public transport is only good when you compare it to rural Ireland. Mm, compare it to another nice. European city and it's lousy. Yeah. And everywhere but where we provide... that's not what you think looking at the congestion on our roads every morning and evening. It's not, you, it's you, outside you, of Russia now. You, clear, you, clear, you clearly Constant look at that Russia. and say this, this country has done something wrong and what it's done wrong is around the provision of public transport. But where you ever provide, wherever you provide it, people take it. And you know, if we don't get the diagnosis correct, we're unlikely to get the treatment correct. And if we kid ourselves, that what we have here is a population of sulky, snobby car drivers who just won't be told. And if we set about forcing them to change their behaviour, I think you'll get the, you'll get the treatment wrong because you've got the diagnosis wrong. It's around providing alternatives, not demonising the one transport mode we have that actually works better than most of the others. And I tell you something else, Claire. While we build public transport, there are still roads we need to build in this country. So we can't just get gun-shy about that. It's an integrated we are transport reducing, mix. We are, we are reducing. Well, the, go, the, in the programme for government is reducing that spend around road projects Fine. and focusing well, on public do, transport. Do, do, do it by spending more on public transport, okay. not pretending we don't need Brian, to do Brian, are we demonising um, drivers, the one, maybe one of the reliable modes of transport um, around this country? To a certain extent, perhaps, yeah, because we're calling out the problem. You know, it's not just congestion, it's air quality that causes um, very bad health outcomes, it's the, the accidents that they cause. So yeah, we are calling it out and I think that's okay to call it out like that. But one of the, the key things that's in the report is that the change isn't going to happen from the minister with a stick telling us all to get off our roads or out of our cars. It's with consensus and dialogue and, and discussion around these. And it, it, the, one of the key things it says is that at local government level that this, this has to happen. And that's where the big change is going to happen uh, to, to, to make this report a reality. It's probably worth making a distinction between when it's a climate conversation and when it isn't. Because the very worst thing you can do for the climate is burn diesel to move one person around in a quarter of a tonne of metal. Um, but when you're talking about just not liking cars, because you well, know, they cause accidents. Well, I think this is part actually, of the bigger you know, report. It is the yeah. Climate Council well, you can say, about you say, Brian said they, 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 they cause accidents. And, you know, that's a, a somewhat pejorative. We have amongst the safest roads in the entire world. OEC data will confirm that. And we've made enormous progress on those things. So, you know, if you, if you don't like cars because you don't like cars because you don't like them, fine, but say so. Don't say that that is part of the climate conversation because it isn't. Well, I think we need to be very careful, you know, and look at the reasons why people will use their car, right? 99% of people are like me. They use it when they have to. I much prefer to walk or to, to run to be on my bike. And I can't, there's times when I absolutely need to use my car. So you can't demonise people for years of neglect of public transport. They don't have a public transport option, but give them a public transport option. And, and I they, believe that people will, will take, take that change. Absolutely. Um, focus indeed on uh, the services and providing them. Well, my thanks to Brian and to Connor. Coming up after the break, uh, the government rejects IBEX's suggestion that proof would be required for domestic abuse paid leave. Stay with us. Welcome back. Employer group IBEC has objected to plans to introduce paid domestic violence leave 
IBEC argues that employers should be allowed to ask for proof to stop any potential abuse of paid leave to victims of domestic abuse. Well, for more on this now, I'm joined by the CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, Nolene Blackwell. Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly and Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers are still with me. And I'm also joined by employment lawyer Shiva Rush. Uh, you're very welcome along to the programme. To come to you first, Nolene Blackwell, if you'd give us a little bit of overview or context for this, these plans to introduce domestic um, domestic violence leave in the workplace. Yeah. How? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Would it be used in what circumstances? And why do you believe it is so important yeah. um, for victims of domestic violence? Yeah, so, so while our main name in the Rape Crisis Centre is around sexual violence, about 20% of all of those who are our clients are, are victims of sexual violence at the hands of a partner or ex-partner. So it's in the context of domestic violence. And from that point of view, we absolutely understand the impact of domestic violence on somebody and it affects them in their workplace. It affects the workplace because people cannot operate uh, as well as they can when they, have, um, when they have to deal with the practical consequences of domestic violence as well as the emotional ones. So it is important that... This be recognised in the same way that it's recognised if you have the flu or COVID that you may need to take time off work. And, what, and elsewhere in the world, what the, well, it's also a huge um, imposition on a workplace if somebody is there and not able to do their work correctly. Mm. So it's a win-win situation to identify domestic violence where someone wants it identified and where they need leave in order to attend counselling, in order to attend medical appointments, to attend court, uh, all of these things. There is such value for the person themselves to be able to take it, but also for the employer to be able to say, you go and deal with that, come back then and you'll be able to do your work in, in, a, in a better way for yourself. Right, so what did you think when it emerged that IBEC, the business lobby representing employers, were not happy with this, as they believe 
it could be open to abuse. Yeah, so again, I have a real trouble, and I think Deputy O'Reilly said this earlier, is that I have real trouble with uh, seeing why people would go in to any employer and say uh, the reason they needed leave was because they were suffering domestic abuse at home, if it wasn't true. Uh, it's just not one of those things that people really talk about. Even when it is true, it's very hard for people to reveal it. So it's highly unlikely that that would be the case in, in our view. Um, also, how, how you get proof is beyond me. Um, they, they spoke, Ibeck did, I think, in their submission first spoke about um, introducing, it was introducing a criminal element into the workplace because mm. there's this crime of domestic violence. There isn't, actually. There's a crime of coercive control. There are crimes of assault. These things take the guards forever to work out. And it is not for an employer to be mm. looking for proof of these kind of things. It, there, there is no doubt that somebody's going to have to say it. They're going to have to be able to say it in a confidential mm. way. It should be part of a much bigger policy. Yeah, um, that's the question. How do you prove domestic violence, Louise? You can't. And that's why uh, it shouldn't be in the legislation. And in fact, we have a precedent set already. So I have a piece of legislation that's at the second reading of committee on the 18th of October. It's, the, it's an amendment to the Organisation of Working Time Act. It provides for 10 days paid leave and there is no requirement for proof. There's also a sanction, by the way, so if So just to clarify, is, is this particular legislation requiring... Uh, proof or that, that, that there would be, that there's an element of that within it. You're saying that what Sinn Féin are saying is not five days leave, but there should be 10 days leave yeah. and also that the... Oh, no, sorry, the, I just want to be very clear now. That's what the government are saying as well. So, um, and the, well, what they have said. Sorry, yeah. I, I, they may be about yes, to roll back on I that. I think Martin was clear on that. Yeah, that. because what, what has happened, and in 2021, myself and Minister Simon Harris launched the NUIG policy. So that provides for 10 days and no proof. Simon Harris then wrote to the heads of all of the universities and said, you should follow suit. So as far as I'm concerned, government policy is to adopt the legislation as I have right. uh, as I have written it. I hope that they will support my legislation and I hope they won't water it down because I do think 10 is the established, mm. as far as I'm concerned, now the government have established 10. And as I say, at the 18th of October, we'll get a chance to have a, a hearing okay. again. And I really do hope that we get, get cross-party support for this because I think it's something that we can and we should do. As far as I can see, there is broad support for this. But the big what issue is the said, employer support for this. Shiva Rush, I want to bring you in here just from an employment law point of view. And we did ask the employer's body, IBEC, to come on the show tonight. We were told no one was available. Um, but Shiva, from an employment law, law point of view, does IBEC have a point at all? Is this difficult ground for employers? Um, so the proposal, well, there's no legislative um, provisions yet aside from the private members bill, which uh, Louise brought forward and I think generally does have support in the Doyle. Um, but what the recommendations of the domestic leave, domestic violence leave report that the minister said today that he supported were for five days um, domestic violence leave mm. and that that would be paid. And I can see how that would put small to medium enterprises under pressure. Um, however, I suspect that people, and you know, it's not necessarily just women, but people who are um, victims of domestic abuse may well be abusing sick leave policies to take sick leave days for these types of things. Um, also, I think that uh, for you know high trust, large organisations, there are lots of organisations who already have these policies in place, um, and I'm not aware that they seek proof. And I think it's very difficult now. 
uh, at the moment under the Parental Leave Act where an employee takes this type of emergency force majeure leave, it's three days, there's no requirement to, to show proof for, for that, that your, your um, presence, say, so for the, at the illness of a child was, was required. I mean, why is this requirement then necessary, you would argue, if you can take, in the event of a family crisis, you can take that force majeure leave? Yeah. Um, and you don't need to prove what's going on at home. No, but I, I do. Why yeah. does it start getting tricky around the issue of domestic abuse? If somebody actually has the guts to even say it to their employer, yeah. which must be a really difficult thing to do in the first place. Agreed. And I think that a lot of employers also have this ESG concept in their values now, this environmental, social and governance issues. That's very high in the employment law arena at the moment. So employers are definitely... Um, needing to step into the social issues uh, to, and to, to say what they're doing about those. Mm. So, again, I suspect that a lot of employers who already maybe have these policies in place aren't looking for that proof. And it, it would be very difficult to prove, but you know, are you, are you going to have to, to yeah. bring a guard or report to your employer to say, yes, they were making a statement about domestic abuse and that's why they needed the day off? So the question is, I don't know, is more clarity needed around this area? We heard the Taoiseach today in the Dolly was very forthright when uh, Jennifer Whitmore of the Social Democrats put it to him. Um, and when he said, like, people won't invent stories for domestic violence, um, they simply won't do it. So um, as far as IBEC concerns being on the table, are they being listened to at all, Lisa? Well, look, I think we can all agree it's been a bad day for IBEC. Uh, and I think the response, they probably weren't expecting it, but there's been a pretty harsh response right across the spectrum. And I, I was one of those that joined with that, that earlier. And, I, you know, quite frankly, it's ridiculous to suggest you could prove or provide proof to your employer that you're in, under coercive control or in a domestic violence situation. And given the environment that we're in, what we've been through the past two years in particular around violence against women, you know, there's been a whole of government action plan, 363 million announced earlier in the year. In that environment... How anybody could think to lobby in those lines, I, I'm just, I was shocked really to read what they'd actually asked for. Not only did they ask for a legal right to request proof, they requested the government to conduct an economic analysis to see whether the cost to employers, the cost benefit analysis, the cost to employers versus the benefit to the employee, which I think is just, it's missing mm. the point, you know? So, I mean, look, just to be very clear, the, the work-life balance bill, uh, that will be the, the legislation that will contain the provisions for the statutory uh, paid leave for domestic violence. It's proposed to provide for five days paid leave. It'll be reviewed in two years' time. And I just want to, you know, whilst I've been quite, I think, harsh against IBEC, I do want to acknowledge you know, this is a change for business. It is an extra cost to business, and we acknowledge that. But the ask from business should be for assistance financially mm -hmm. to, to work through this. They went down the wrong line. Mm. I think they've backtracked on that a little bit. I think they've reflected, and I welcome that. I think we just need to move past this now, because if we're serious as a country about eradicating the scourge of violence against women, we have to get employers on board. We can't do this without them. Well, I sincerely hope now that if the government are talking about, you know, slashing from 10 to 5... That we're not slashing anything. This well, is the first they, time they it'll be legislated for, and it'll be I, five I days paid leave. But and we do have to work with employers as well, which is fair. me for one second. You know. There's 10 days leave in NUIG at the moment and in other universities. So I, I sincerely hope that the ask will not be that they will row back. There are also other places no where, back, where they give... Okay, so there's a difference between 10 and 5, and that's the rollback. But, but there, there is no 10. 
There's, it does, there's that 10 exist. in NUIG at the moment. There's 10 in the universities at the moment. But there is no current statutory leave for okay. domestic violence. So when the statutory leave comes exist. in, I hope that they retain the 10 where they have it and there's that no it's retention. not you're, rolled you're, back on. Misleading. There's 10. But, but if, you, if right. you work in NUIG, you're entitled we'll to 10 days now. But you are entitled to 10 days now. So, you but know, there is no statutory scheme in place for I, domestic violence. I understand that because I brought forward. No, it's not illegal. No, but it is. I'm not misleading at all. It was announced by the government that they would have 10 days in okay. NUIG. I just but hope that they will retain Anyways, that 10 days leave. It's not the same thing. Because right. I think that is really important. And I do okay. think even if it's five, we should work towards this is, 10. And this, is, this hasn't been legislated for, at of all. course. Yes, no. There's no, there's no, so there's so no we're into new, we're into new, new territory on this. It's new territory. Um, Nolene, I am, though I am curious to know, I mean, do how difficult do people who are dealing with a situation of domestic violence find it to actually, if they can't even tell their own family members about what's going on, yeah. I mean, people may be surprised to think, well, how would they approach it in the workplace mm -hmm. to seek time off? Um, because I don't know, they have an injury or they need to deal with uh, some fallout with their children or, or all sorts of yeah. very, very personal and very, very difficult situations. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and say, for instance, just in relation to the people who come to us, there's often no injury visible at all. You can't see a bruise or you can't see a broken anything. It's just damage to the person at the deepest core of their being in terms of sexual violence. And I mean, that question of even going to the guards is a huge step for anyone in involved in intimate violence because it's a most disruptive step mm -hmm. to, be, to say my partner or my ex-partner has abused me. In so this do you believe way. it will be used or underused as legislation? Well, well, I think, you know, it will settle in a place. And if, um, if, if a company has a good policy around zero tolerance of sexual violence in their own workplace, mm -hmm. around supportive domestic violence policies around it, then people will be able to use it in confidence, in confidentiality, and will be able to do it. I mean, the cost to the employer of people trying to do, trying to deal with the hurt and the harm of mm -hmm. sexual and domestic violence without support is much more than dealing with it in, in a supportive way. Shiva, I mean, what sort of supports do you think employers need as this legislation goes through in order to make sure that it works as, as appropriate? Um, they'll definitely need guidance. They'll need support in developing their policies because it's going to be very unfamiliar for them. It's a very, very sensitive issue for people, as you say, to go to their employer, admit that this is happening. They might say to their employer, I need my salary diverted to another account. I can't have it going into that account anymore or I need to move house. I need to stay in a safe house. Um, for instance, if you had an employer who, who you know, had a report from an employee and is wondering, should I go to the guards? So there will be training required. There will be a lot of support required, not just in putting place policies, but training managers how to deal with reports about this, training you know, the, the wider workforce in terms of supporting. But really, it's about opening these conversations for employers um, so that their, their employee population knows that it's a, it's a safe space and that they will be supported. And ultimately, as Nolene says, I think it is. It, it could be a win-win for employers. Mm -hmm. um, Nolene, while you're here, I just want to talk about the, your report out today from the Rape Crisis Centre showing that uh, 14,000 calls were made to the Rape Crisis Centre uh, helpline in 2021. Am I right? That yeah. is up on previous years. Do you put that down to the lockdown again? We were in lockdown for parts of that year. 
where we know there were higher incidents of of of, of uh, domestic attacks, yeah. certainly in the area. Yeah. Of rape. So, so this is the rape crisis helpline. It's the sexual violence one for the most part. So most of the people who are coming to us are disclosing instances of sexual violence, of sexual abuse, rape, sexual harassment, and it is going up each year. It's going up. Funnily enough, in terms of sexual violence, people don't report during the most restricted times. They don't have the privacy. Um, mm. Often, if they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, they don't. They don't want to be. They don't want to have to say that. So, what we noticed in 2021 was when restrictions lifted, you had more people reporting in. When people could, you know, go out and about a bit more, you'd more coming in as well. But again, of the 14,000 plus contacts to the helpline via web chat or text or the phone. Um, more than half of them were disclosing for the first time. So that's over 7,000 contacts to the sexual violence helpline who were saying for the first time not, that either they had suffered uh, recent or uh, longer term um, sexual abuse. We are hearing from people who have held it together for years and who kind of now go, no, I know there is help available. I'm going to go and look for it for myself. Um, so that's good. But, mm. but the numbers are going up and we think they will continue to go up as people stop blaming themselves so much for being abused yeah. and recognise someone else is responsible for and it. I, I think um, that's what this legislation is all about as well, that you can, you can open up and you can, you can get that time yeah. and you can get that support that you need. We'll have to leave that there. My thanks to the panel. Lots more coming up after this break, including by more and more of Gen Z are quietly quitting their jobs. Stay with us. Welcome back. Quiet quitting as a phrase has become popular thanks to social media with trending videos on TikTok gaining prominence for the idea with many. A new survey out this week found that 40% of Irish workers under the age of 30 say they do the bare minimum to fulfil their job description while their pay or job progression remains unchanged. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by writer and broadcaster Keith Walsh and uh, Country Manager at Robert Walters Recruitment, Suzanne Feeney. You're very welcome along to the programme tonight. Quiet quitting. Uh, what is this, Suzanne? Essentially, you're doing the bare minimum. You're doing what's required of you. Yes, very much so. And it's not, it's not a new term per se. It's a term that first emerged um, back in 2009 um, by an economist. But what we're seeing now is following on a range of um, social media um, TikTok videos about quiet quitting, um, we're finding that there is a real um, phenomenon at play here at the moment where, as you say, almost half of under 30s um, are quietly quitting in their roles. So effectively, it's um, just doing what's required um, in the role, not engaging in anything over and above that. And So uh, that means not taking calls after working hours or not um, doing a little bit of extra collaboration with another exactly. team on something so else? It's not even it... so much about hours um, as actually that sense of maybe going over and above, maybe not collaborating on, you know, projects that come in that are really urgent and, 
you know, need extra kind of people to get involved. So maybe, literally sticking to the spec. Yeah, maybe at the bottom of all of this is about incentivising workers that they feel, I mean, key to that report is if they don't feel that there's pay yeah. um, for the work they're doing um, or the progress they're making, they're not going to make the effort, which is arguably reasonable. It is reasonable and what we're very much seeing is um, workers and particularly those under the age of 30 working their wage. They're just saying, this is what mm. I'm being paid for. I'm not doing extra. Um, you know, where's my pay increase? Where's the reward and the recognition for actually going over and above? Yeah, interesting, isn't it, that it applies really to younger workers as well. They're obviously a sense of that they're, they're disincentivized. I mean, everything is expensive at the moment as well with the cost of living. Does all of that kind of play into it? If I'm not getting paid, I don't feel I'm getting paid enough, I'm not going to bother. Yeah, I think so. But I think also like uh, since COVID, people are more aware of their free time and sort of like trying to get that work-life balance. And I, I, I'm not sure if quite quitting is it. Well, I know it's a thing and it's a term and it's a TikTok thing and, you know, it's a cool thing to talk about. But I think it might just be that people are coming in at nine taking their breaks, you know, taking their lunch break and leaving at five o'clock or half five and doing their seven and a half hours or whatever. And that to some organisations or to some people is seen as, you know, the bare minimum, which is actually, well, that's actually your job and you're doing your time. Whereas kind of, I worked in organisations pre-COVID where there was, there was, I remember one place I worked, there was like three guys who had a competition to see who could come in the earliest and who would stay the latest. Oh, no. So you basically had this sort of like standoff <laughs> where they'd be in at half seven and then they'd be kind of looking at each other and like the first person to leave would be like half seven and then they could all leave. And I'm looking at them going, either you're terrible at your job or you've got the most important job in the world and you have to be here for like 14 hours. I mean... Everyone if, trying to prove a point. And you, I wonder, if, I wonder, was there any bonus at the end of that? Probably but, but, not. But probably not. But like, how much work were they doing? Like, it, to me, that means they're just bad. So, at their do you job. think that there's a lot of negative connotation? Whoever came up with this was clearly an employer. Uh, Siobhan, would you agree with that? Well, the, the impact of this, there, there are negative impacts from this because what we're seeing is that um, it's very often it's born out of frustration. Um, it, um, there, there are three main causes that have been identified um, burnout, pay, and disengagement. So, actually, the disengagement piece, like two out of three people at the moment are saying they're disengaged or feel disengaged with their work post-COVID. Um, so there is a real knock-on effect. Kind is of. that remote working? Is that maybe working from home that they don't feel like, is that a problem for employers or to get to, you know, to get um, to get employees back together, to get a, a team working together and make people feel involved? There, there is, yeah, that's an element of it. I think there's also been really high attrition in organisations. Like there have been huge opportunities kind of in the Irish market kind of over the course of this year. Um, so, you know, people, many people in the course of COVID were reassessing kind of their work life, what the relationship was with work um, to the rest of their life. Um, and many decided that actually they needed a change. They might necessarily know what that change is. Um, and there has been an opportunity in this market for people to move. Yeah. So other people are going back to workplaces now where maybe they don't know anybody or they've remotely onboarded. There aren't really people in the office if they do go in. The social events maybe aren't there as much. So th there's a lot, of, a lot of factors. Yeah, I mean, it's more than just, isn't it, you know, working a job and working nine to five. If all those extra things aren't there around, say, team building, but in the, the best possible way, um, then, you know, where, where is the incentive? Yeah, like, I mean, you've got to, you've, I mean, a work, work, we talk about work and jobs, but it's got to be a challenge. You've got to be interested. There's got to be a social life. There's got to be friends in there, especially for younger people coming into organisations. Like, there's got to be a bit of a buzz about it. Mm. It can't just be a kind of a like, oh, just 
clock in, there's nobody in the office. And do you think that has changed? Do you think that, you know, that the working culture has changed and it's moved more towards this always on, always switched on, always having to, you know, look at emails even outside of hours that's taken away from maybe the social aspect or other aspects that may draw you to your job? Yeah, possibly. But also we've, we've discovered it sort of maybe a new way of working, which may not be the healthiest, mm-hmm. but also like you, if, if you're working at home, uh, a, lot of, a lot of like women worked at home and had children in the house with them like during COVID. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, I can, if I crack on for two hours yeah. here and get the head down while the child is having a nap, I can actually get a lot of work done in two hours. So when you kind of go back to the child is in crash and you're in work, it's like, I could actually get most of my work done in three hours. Mm-hmm. And do you know what? If I come in at half nine, I could be gone by four o'clock and I could be home and collect the child early because I know and I can still do my job. And is there anything wrong with somebody doing their job within 25, 27 hours like, maybe we need to look at the four-day week. Like, I'd rather somebody was committed, mm. uh, did the bare minimum, but did their job, was consistent, you know, worked to a deadline, than somebody coming in and, like, just being brilliant for two days but missing a deadline on a Friday. <laughs> yeah, Do but you know are I mean? there people now who may be taking advantage of a situation, like, you know, enjoying a beyond an extended coffee break or, you know, your two- or three-hour lunch or something like that? I mean, is that a problem... Is that when they're talking about that, when, when they're talking about, you know, at the nub of all of this, is that something that employers have to contend with, Suzanne, do you think? I, I, yes, there's definitely an element of um, concerns maybe about productivity. And, mm. um, and, and that's where this quiet quitting kind of may potentially cause issues for employers. Um, because if, if people are slowly disengaging and pulling back, it has a knock-on effect on other people. So all of a sudden, your innovation, your creativity how the role, how the business evolves, how other people are impacted um, is affected. Okay, we've done our hours. We have to leave it there. That is it from (laughs) us. Um, My thanks to all the panel tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can now also find us on Instagram, but from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.